Welcome to Beer in a Movie, the podcast where we discuss two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies. Sometimes achieving outstanding pairings, but other times giving ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I am one of your two weekly co-hosts. I'm here with... Dave Gurney. And you didn't say your name. I'm going to say it. Joe Hillier. Oh, I didn't say my name. Sorry. No, 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 no. It's Joe and David yeah. and a third guest. And this week's third guest, I'm really excited to introduce. It's a friend of mine from the local comedy scene, Christian Delgado. Hello. I am 20 years younger than them. Yeah. <laughs> no, more probably, than that. probably more than, more than that. Yeah, yeah, sadly. But thank you for being here. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you for being our resident 21 year old now, you know? Yeah. Because now you can represent everybody. That's right. <laughs> yes. So, got, the voice of your generation. I've got questions you about are, your yeah. generation. <laughs> Big responsibility on my back. And you also have a podcast. Yes, I do. It's called Ups and Downs with Christian Delgado. Is me the entire time talking for like 25, 30 minutes. Yeah. Do you amusing. give yourself a topic? Yeah. or Yeah. You... So I do it like uh, I'll write topics throughout the week. And then at the end of the week, I'll be like, oh, this interests me. So I'll talk about that. Like the last one I did, it was all the Marvel announcements. Oh. So the Fantastic Four, we had the Deadpool movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, we yeah. did, had the X-Men 97 trailer. Yeah. I love comic books and yeah. movies and all that. So that. Where do I find it? On uh, YouTube at Christian Delgado. Okay. Real easy. Just my name in YouTube. That's it. And then it should pop up. But you are of legal drinking age, which means David, yes, we I can. Am. That's right. We we can definitely fulfill the uh, portion of the podcast that is beer. And we need to do that before we get too far down the road here. The beer that we are going to be drinking in the first half of this episode, I think, is the absolutely most appropriate beer that we could be drinking in the first half of this episode. It is Red Stripe Pale Lager. It is a Jamaican beer. It's been brewed by Desnos and Geddes in Jamaica since 1928. Okay. So this is almost 100 years old in terms of something that's been available on the market. And certainly a beer that's associated with Jamaica. People who take those vacations to that lovely island um, often come back and look forward to this beer as like a fun way to reminisce about their time yeah. abroad. And even for those of us who've never been to Jamaica, I'll count myself in that category. Um, you, you may have well have seen the distinctive bottles before, although we were remarking before we started the episode that the bottles have changed a little bit yeah. from what they used to be. Right? They were squattier. Yeah, they were a little shorter and right. a little more stout. They're not fully... Um, extended upwards they're not as slim as a typical you know 12 ounce bottle would be i don't know it's still it's still a striking and and distinctive bottle so i'm gonna get mine open nice oh i can smell it there oh this is you know i i have had a fair amount of red stripes over the years although it's been some time i remember being 24 25 and trying to appear more sophisticated yeah And so you'd get a red stripe if it was available because, you know, it had to be better than a Miller Lite. And it made you stand out, right? You bring the six-pack of this to a party, and, and you're not going to be just the guy who's showing up with Miller Highlights. Is this your first red stripe, Christian? Yes, it is. All right. Well, prepare to be sent to the land of Jamaica. Cheers. Cheers. All right. Dave, we decided to do it. We did. Bob Marley, one love. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Marley, colon. If you've listened to the show for the last few weeks, I've been especially hard on the marketing for this movie. And ultimately, there was nothing else in the theaters we wanted to see. We are waiting on Zone of Interest, patiently, not so patiently, to get here. And it was like, do you want to do Bob Marley One Love, David? I mean, I've talked so much shit about it. Let's just go see the thing and then see if it lives up to what I had very low expectations. Mm -hmm. It tells the story of a period of time 
in Bob Marley's life with flashbacks back to some of the things that are standard in the biopic, the flashes of childhood that might have shaped this man or woman that is the, the topic of the biopic. But the film picks up as he is preparing to do a unifying concert in Jamaica where there are two political factions that have been warring for a time. Yeah. Let me let the music bring some peace, some unity. That is then interrupted in a manner of speaking when assassins come to his home and injure him, his wife, and a couple of bandmates. They end up having the concert, but he is whisked off stage. But then uh, his influence to move out of the country for his own safety. His his, his wife and kids move to America. He moves to London where he then, a bulk of the film really, the recording release and rise to fame after his landmark album Exodus. Right. Then back to Jamaica to have that concert that had been interrupted earlier. That's basically the plot line and the timeline of, oh, and then, of course, we learn that he has cancer. Right. Um, In the course of it. At the end part of the film. So, David, you said last week on After Hours you were literally scared to go see it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, scared in the sense that all biopics have that. You know, there's that danger of of falling into the sort of predictable biopic tropes and beats um, that that you're talking about, Joe. Like those flashes back to particular moments in childhood. Um, The the one thing I will say out of the gate is here they did not decide to do the sort of straight up cradle to grave musician biopic. Mm -hmm. We we don't get it where it starts out with him being born and like his mom saying like he's a special one, you know, and and then going from there instead. It really is trying to take on this very specific period, mostly the year 1977, Mm -hmm. but kind of the tail end of 1976 is when it starts going into 1978 in this really pivotal period in his career, in his life where, yes, Jamaica was on the brink of a kind of civil war. There's all this uh, suffering going on, and he as the biggest pop culture figure out of that country and and, in the most famous Jamaican in the world at that point um, was going to try to help with, but then getting right. frustrated and getting so at least it you know off the bat it made me feel a little bit better. Okay, clearly we're not going to try to do like every mm-hmm. moment in this guy's life, but we do get some flashbacks to some of those childhood moments, and and we get some of the predictable beats that we would expect. A lot of the predictable beats that we would expect with the biopic, but you know always there the music has got to be kind of the core of it. And if the music works, then maybe the film can work. I go into a biopic and I like the music on some level, which I do. I like the music of Bob Marley. Yeah. It's not my favorite music in the world, but it's one that I've certainly experienced many times over. I own some of his records. I'm, I'm a, you know, enough of a fan that I was excited from that standpoint. But then it really does become, well, what are they going to do with this music? How are they going to situate it? And is it going to be sort of a satisfying experience beyond just, I like these songs? Christian, did you see Bohemian Rhapsody? Yes, I did. Okay, so how they use the music in that film, notably an almost entire recreation of his uh, Freddie Mercury's Live Aid set. Right. The use of music. Is that what you mean when you say use of music? Or are you talking also where it's dropped in the soundtrack? Well, I mean, I guess a little of both. But really, I mean, with with a musician biopic, you know that it's going to have their music. Sure. And then is that going to be enough? Could it maybe even boomerang back and make you dislike the music if it's a bad movie? You know what I mean? That's Okay. So that's where the fear comes in for me is, 
I know I like the music going into it. Is there anything this film can do to either capitalize on that and and sow some warm feelings based on that music with the film? Or is it going to do things that make me feel worse about the music? I hope that the Are first you- one, the former, is that it tells a good story. Yeah. Are you suggesting that like you want it to kind of be almost a greatest hits for like the movie? I don't like- think I do. That's the tricky yeah. thing. It's not there's not a really easy formula that I can point to. I mean, I have a few biopics that I've enjoyed more than others, but I don't even know that there's a formula that comes out of that that I that I like. And and I think the greatest hits version is one that actually tends to turn me off. Was it around that time that Rocket Man came out when Bohemian Rhapsody came out? It they, followed they were like Bohemian. one year yeah. apart, yeah. But like I've seen it now too where they're like, yeah, Bohemian Rhapsody was the better one at the time, but as it goes on, Rocket Man is like better yeah. as a story because it shows the highs and lows as opposed to like the greatest hits, and then maybe a sprinkle in like, oh, everybody knows that he did this. Well, I think yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody w- was an awful film. <laughs> I mean, a, a, bad, a bad movie that uh, struck a chord with many, many people that it just did not strike with me. Well, for a lot of people, the music is enough, I think, with Bohemian Rhapsody, which I also was not the biggest fan. I didn't hate it, but I felt like it was a fairly by-the-numbers biopic that didn't do much to elevate the material beyond the music that I already had some enjoyment of. I think the bad part, too, is like, especially with Rami Malek winning the Oscar that year, they're like, oh, this must be the blueprint of biopics. Well, there you go. Yeah. 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 So, and, the, and the blueprint of biopics as torn apart by uh, Walcard, the Dewey Cox story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because after that movie came out, screenwriters had to say, well, if I do a biopic, I might have to avoid some of these things. And let's get back to it. One love does not avoid them all. No, not uh, all yeah. of them. Uh, Were you a Bob Marley guy going into this? I song? actually really wasn't. I only heard a couple, few songs yeah. of him. I, it's not something I listen average, especially growing up with the whole streaming thing. Like you can skip almost everything. <laughs> so it's like you kind of hear remnants, and then some people, if they're really interested in it, I'll listen to it because I'm like, oh, music. Like it's different. Yeah, not something I'm used to. So I'll just like sit. Yeah, because uh, I feel like the main goal is to like get them interested in the music and the message. And I think it did okay for like wanting you to like get into the music, even yeah. though it wasn't the driving force of the movie. I, but don't hold back. What do you think? Well, okay. So I mean, I I, I didn't. <laughs> I, I really don't know what you're gonna say right now. I'm I'm very. Um, I didn't hate this film. Okay, I so didn't, let, I let, didn't let me it. let me just say I did not dread the time I spent in the theater. The music was. A very big high point for me, as as it should be, right? I mean, it should be. But I didn't come out feeling like the movie had done a whole lot to give me the insight into the guy that I would hope a biopic would give me. I think it's a real challenge. I mean, you, you come into it, at, and he's already in kind of a high point of his career. And as you said, Joe, like Exodus really just kind of propelled him even mm-hmm. further. But he was already a global phenomenon. Yeah. He was already very well known. And he, Exodus, and, and you know better than I, yeah. turned up the volume on him. You yeah. know? Whereas once I enjoyed this song, now I'm understanding that this is one of those artists that comes along every once in a while right so i I think it put him in a in a different place at least globally as an artist to take seriously Uh as as somebody who everybody wanted to pay attention to at the time or everybody was into music wanted to pay attention to at the time but i think it suffers from you know needing to move us through this really critical moment in his life without being able to give us a lot of build-up to it or even really a lot of what happens after it. I mean, that stuff gets captured in these like on-screen titles from before. And I said, 
when I started, I prefer this to the cradle to grave version. I prefer to see it. But there was something missing for me in that I didn't get to see the sort of magic of, I mean, as close as we get is, you know, young Bob Marley in the studio in one of the flashbacks playing with the Whalers early on for the, uh, it's probably Cox and God or the record producer, whomever was listening. And, you know, they're playing their song Simmer Down, which Mm -hmm. was an early, early hit for the Whalers, at least in Jamaica. And, you know, and there is some of that excitement and that like, oh, because they play this more standard kind of version of an American soul song. And then they switch to that and it's clear, okay, no, this is a different sound. This is a different kind of energy. And these guys really have something that's going to change the landscape, at least for them, if not, you know, a lot of musicians around them. Man, how do I say this? It's (laughs) like one of those things where it's like you, like you were saying, you want more of the artists. I feel the only time you really got to see it or like not see it, but like feel the way he was was through like the end credits where they show the live video. Yeah, his like, actual yeah, yeah his actual image, live. Yeah. Cause then when they were doing the whole like going through the parties and she was the Rita was like talking to him. Yeah. She was like, you're losing it, but it you didn't really feel that building up. Well I, that's I think you you hit the nail on the head with the scene that you're pointing to here. There's a there is a pivotal scene that comes pretty late in the film. I mean it's like maybe two thirds of the way through the yeah. film where you know, he's he's in London, Marley's in London, and he's starting to live the kind of more the rock star lifestyle right. and go to these parties where he's got to just kind of like press the flesh with people who want to be seen. And he's the star it. of the room. Yes. He becomes kind of like a puppet where he's like, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be like laid back. You right. Know, this is my message as opposed to actually showing it and being right. assertive with it. Right. And, you know, in the context of that scene, uh, Rita, his wife, you know, kind of walks away and gets angry and, yeah. and, and really throws a lot at him. It's not just yeah. about what he's doing there in that situation. It's the lack of attention to the family. And it's also infidelity, which is stuff that we haven't, like, if you know Bob Marley's biography, right. you know some of these things went on. From watching the movie alone, you don't. That it's, it's stuff almost, isn't really built up. It's a screenwriter way to say, we addressed it. Yes. But to me, the problem here is that the real Bob Marley, because okay, I said this on After Hours last week, I, I know I can sing three birds with you. I can, every word probably, but I don't know, you mm-hmm. know. So the film accomplished me coming home and doing a research project on Bill, on Bob Marley and Rastafarianism because, the, you know, the tenets of Rastafarianism are, are given, like a small little education lesson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I realized, I thought it was just the dudes that, that had the dreadlocks and the hat. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, I didn't know. It's, yeah, a, lar- yeah, yeah. it's a larger thing. So I kind of went down a little rabbit hole there. A key tenet of Rastafarianism is the use of the herbal medicine. Right. Sacramental herb, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I I think we see Bob Marley in the film pass a joint once. But otherwise, it's not in the movie. It's around. But nor was... Because he had the the pipe. That was the only part I vividly remember where he's like... But neither was the Freddie Mercury's homosexuality really in Bohemian Rhapsody. So it's like... And then at the beginning of the Alamo Drafthouse thing I saw... Yeah. Uh, Ziggy Marley, uh, whose yes. album mm-hmm. Tomorrow People I Owned, came on to say, we endorse this film and we this is a good movie about yes. our father. But what the film, I think, did was t- was really sand down the grit. Yeah. There's references to 
the fact that she was raising many children from many women, as I understand. Right. Yes. In that in that fight that they had. It was like it was it, like yeah. two sentences yeah. that she mentioned. But that would shape the relationship a little bit more than one or two sentences in yeah. a, a highly dramatic scene. And let's yeah. give it up for Lashana Lynch. Yeah. As Rita Marley, who I think delivers. And Kingsley Benadir, I think, does a fairly good job here with yeah, Bob Marley. Just Bob Marley is so Iconographic, yeah, iconographic. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Iconic, iconically. Yeah. <laughs> that I see that that's not Barb Marley. Almost it all is. of the it's time. It's a challenge, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the long shots at the concerts, fair job. Yeah, but the close-ups and his mouth, and I've seen Bob Marley smile on the cover yeah. of the. You know, I mean, I never got there with it. Didn't hate it, but yeah. it does fall into some of these tropes. Yeah, it says big on the screen, Sweden. And then big on the screen, Copenhagen or whatever. Yeah. He, okay, he's, France. He's yeah, doing France. a world tour. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a line in the script without this montage, and then straight into that shot of scanning the top ten to see where is it. Mm-hmm. I was like, this guys, you didn't see Walkhard because <laughs> there's a lot of these little beats throughout that were distracting and took me out of it in a movie. I think I was really dying to kind of connect with halfway through. Yeah. Again, if I'm seeing this depiction of this person's life, I want to come away feeling like I understand this person in some different way. Yeah. Not the same way that I came in. And I don't feel like this film gave me a whole lot. Now, if you went in and you had no idea of Bob Marley and his story, maybe it is. And and I guess, Mm -hmm. Christian, you're coming to it a little bit more with fresh eyes because you haven't. I don't know. Do you feel like you got enough from seeing him as somebody who was trying to have this kind of unification concert, that he was trying to rise above the the conflict uh, in the political scene of that moment? I don't know. I guess maybe because like when you're open to the movie, it's like he's trying in text. It's not even shown. It's in text like. He's trying to put on a peace concert for the two political parties. Mm-hmm. And then you're kind of shoved straight in where it's like uh, him with the band members and like them doing the stuff to like get it ready. Right. As opposed to it's like, no, he should have addressed it himself as the character yeah. to say, hey, this is what I want to do. And this is a reason as opposed to them showing that at the end when he's doing it again. Right. Or. Uh, he famously had money trouble because uh, yeah. one of his executives was pilfering money. It's it's tidied up in a one sentence, two, two, three sentence yeah. dialogue. Mm-hmm. Punch him out in the alleyway. Well, and never boy, spoken did that up. come out of nowhere. I mean, I know they, they yeah. did the ham fisted showing the manager receiving cash. fat <laughs> envelopes with cash right in full view of Bob Marley, which is like the most ridiculous way to right. depict yeah. that situation. You know, they're at some party and he like looks over and the manager's like grabbing the envelope with cash. Did, did it say in Magic Marker, secret cash <laughs> on the envelope? Bribe. This, it, it, it was written bribe on it. It also wasn't even Bob, it was Rita that saw her that, him like receive right. the money that's too. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah. And then, <laughs> so then to have Bob Marley, who is all about peace and love and unification and all this stuff and yeah. I and I, mm-hmm. right? The The idea of, we're all one. It's not like you and me. It's I and I. And then he just goes and like, he's going to pulverize this guy, going to kill him. He grabs the chair. His, his uh, mm-hmm. you know, his bandmates have to hold him back to keep him from, from doing this guy in over money, which he says he doesn't care about. And again, I know people are complicated and I know that that's sure. like, I'm sure mm-hmm. that there was an altercation like that that took place, but I'm also certain there were several interactions leading up to it Had that would have probably shown how frustrated and angry he was getting that would lead a guy who was generally so peace-loving and so much rooted in this kind of Rastafarian philosophy that 
he wouldn't just do it on a dime. And it makes it feel like he does mm-hmm. it on a dime in the film. It felt sort of like, I guess like when people mention like they're religious, but then when it they show it, it's like something you don't really right. expect them to, I guess. But they like bring it out of nowhere to just involve it. Yeah. And I think there are ways that, again, it happened in real life most likely. I'm sure there are ways that we could have, but just the way it plays out in the film feels unearned. It mm-hmm. feels like Joe was saying earlier, we're putting this in here because this is if we import- don't, we'll be this is an important <laughs> yeah. event that happened, and he did have this break with his management, so we need to depict that. Yeah, it's almost as if the man Bob Marley that became the man we believe we know or that we see, mm-hmm. yeah, is not represented here in a full capacity. To make the film ultimately more interesting, but rather a sanitization, almost Disney version of the story. And that's what I, I didn't like about it. It's However, pop. I did not enjoy myself. I put double negatives in it to make it more confusing. <laughs> I enjoyed myself watching the movie. Yeah. But I could see that this is not a movie for the ages. This is not going to go up there. The director, uh, Ronaldo Marcus Green, did King Richard. Right. And I had similar, you know, yeah. I had similar yeah. takes. This is not mm-hmm. a director I care. Sometimes... We'll get a director and we go, can't wait for the next one. I've seen two (laughs) of this guy's, both of these uh, biopics and both of them leaving me ultimately Mm. a little less than satisfied. But if it's on streaming and the right grass is in the room, (laughs) maybe, maybe it's the one. I too on King Richard had my reservations. I think I like King Richard maybe a little bit more than this, but not by much. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that... It's such a burden on a filmmaker to try to live up to a biopic. I mean, obviously, you have the built-in audience, and this one is doing well. We should note that this film actually did better than expected at the box office uh-huh. on its opening mm-hmm. weekend. Yeah, it's got a worldwide total so far of $74.6 million. Right, on a Whoa. budget of like 60 or something. Uh, f- or, uh, yeah, anyway, can't find it, it. you know, it's already exceeded as a its budget and its box office, it's likely to have a few more. It, it'll probably be a fairly profitable film. And I, will, I can see an audience for the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Older people that really like music. I think if you were satisfied by Bohemian Rhapsody, I don't know why. I mean, this one doesn't feel any worse. Right. I mean, it, okay. it doesn't feel like it doesn't. Any, I, I think not, if, you're if, right. you're, if you're a, you know, and let's face it, if you're a, a boomer or a Gen Xer who has some connection to the 70s and feels something about that music in that moment. I think there's enough here to, that it brings to life that it's going to feel worth your while. I think if you're somebody who's a bit more just of a film fan than, say, a music fan, mm-hmm. that you're probably not going to feel as fulfilled and you're not going to come away thinking, oh, boy, I really get this. And and yeah. certainly if you're not a fan already of reggae or Bob Marley, I don't think you're going to be won over by this film. Yeah, it's definitely like a movie for the herd. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I think I know what you mean. Yeah. It's definitely more like a greatest hits because even the song One Love, they played it like a cup, like more than a couple times. Mm-hmm. They had it, I think, like three or four times mm-hmm. throughout yeah. the film. Yeah. And then like, especially with the audience, I the people I was sitting next to, at least, mm-hmm. they were a little bit older, but they were still like singing to the music. Yeah. Even if it like he was playing it around the campfire. Yeah. Right. People were like yeah. seeing it. which, you know, credit to him, the scenes of like the concerts and, and I think in the recording studio, they often they were using Bob Marley's lip syncing yeah. oh, recorded tracks. But the ones where it was him with an acoustic or, you know, sitting around the firewood, that or was Kingsley Benadire. Yeah. 
doing wow. doing it. And I thought he did a fantastic did yeah. job, actually, because I had to ask, I had to look that up because during it, I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's Bob Marley's voice they're using every time. And lo and behold, it wasn't. There were there were definitely instances where they just let Kingsley Benadir do it. And I guess when they were filming, there was even a thought they might go back over it and have either uh, Ziggy or one of his sons okay. do the voice. But they liked how it sounded. So and he had done such a good job of getting it close enough to to what Bob Marley sounded like. They're like, no, his his voice is great. Let's keep it in here. So from a performance standpoint, I think he's doing what he can. Like you said, Joe, he doesn't look exactly like Bob Marley. There are those differences. So I think if you if you're somebody who's familiar with Bob Marley, you're gonna maybe have a little bit of the um and he doesn't have the teeth like uh <laughs> like Freddie Mercury did that oh Malik could just put in yeah. the you know and subjectively it, like the I, look. Yeah. I lost myself in Walk the Line. You know, I, yeah. I lost myself in Ray. Yeah. I think I even lost myself in the doors once upon a time. Uh-huh. Is but it because of I, the character like the way he looks, or is yeah, it? Yeah, I, I never, I always knew that's not Bob Marley. I didn't uh, lose myself in it, and I, I can only blame, you know, I can't blame myself. It's got to be somebody else's fault. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, going to be the actor here, but who yeah. I think did a great job. So, you know, I don't know. Yeah. This one just didn't scratch an itch for me. The only reason I come away feeling a bit deflated is because Bob Marley, to me, even though I'm not a super fan, I am enough of a fan that I know he has this really important outsized place in music history as he should. And I don't feel like this film does a lot to sort of raise that up and make it more like, I don't think this is going to win over converts. I don't think young people are going to see this film and be like, Oh, the message that Bob Marley had. I don't think it does a strong enough job making an impression on those who don't already have a love for the music that it's going to be this film that kind of keeps his legend alive. I think it's going to be one that, you know, keeps it alive for those who already knew it. But it doesn't do much beyond that. Yeah. Even with those things of him, like the whole political, like, right. uh, banter or whatever, he never mentioned it, too. Like, the entire time he was in doing the Europe no, tour. Yeah. Like, it, there were elements that came, were very, very important to move the story along, and then just went away. Because the tragedy is supposed to what keeps you hooked up or hooked mm-hmm. so you can stay invested. Tell me what the political strife was about. Right. I have no idea. Nope. Yeah. I just they know were it's just very like, important. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, granted, all this stuff is so complicated. If you're going to try to tell that kind of story, you're really, you might as well do a mini series. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're not going to be able to get it all in. So I applaud them for trying to take this moment in his life and to do that kind of, okay, this, we can look at this really pivotal time in his career and it can tell you a lot about this guy. I just don't think it quite gets there. Well, they got one thing right in the movie, David, and that is that they said a beer's name out loud. Yeah. Anytime that that happens, we try to get that beer <laughs> while we did. And they said right. they said Red Stripe. He brought his Red Stripe all the way from Jamaica to England, I think was the yeah. context. So you picked this up on the way here at our local grocery store, which means you can probably get this in every city in America. You should be able to these days. Yeah. yeah. I loved it. Yeah. For a higher volume distribution beer, uh-huh. this is my favorite when we've done this kind of thing really? in a long, long time. Wow. It's very and good. it's a lager, David. Oh, well, come on. Yeah. It's very light, very easy drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trying to look. I don't know if it uses rice in its recipe because it feels so light. 
it's making me feel like it might have a have a rice element because those tend to be that you know a rice lager. Remind me of the ABV. Did you say four four point seven? Okay, yeah, it's not bad at all for you know right craft easy drinking. <laughs> right, but I, like I was saying, it's it's a beer that I remember picking up in the past again because of the distinctive bottle. Because it's okay, it's not just the same old same old. Even before craft beer, it was you know something a little different, distinctive. And drinking it now, I'm totally happy with it. I am not a huge beer drinker. I yeah, like IPAs are a little gross to me. So okay. like this one, <laughs> this one is super good. I'm like very surprised. Well, good. <laughs> so you, you you're maybe more of a lager guy like me. So that <laughs> which I I mean I have there's a time and place for those uh, more flavorful and uh, I'm a fruity drinker. Sometimes <laughs> I, I hope that we explore the depths of that in after hours. Yeah, this is going to be interesting. Yeah, for sure. Okay, but when we come back. We're going back to Jamaica yeah. for the film that they say introduced reggae to the world. And we're back. David, we Joe... Christian Delgado, thank I you for being here. Thank Christian's going to be on a comedy show that I'm putting together this Friday. This Friday. Are you prepared? This is your first show, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm excited. I'm stoked. I've been stoked the entire time. Yeah. Just getting ready. It's been yeah. fun watching you get your, <laughs> get your thing together for it. It's been yeah. fun. Yeah. All right, I'm thirsty still, David. <laughs> and you brought these here. I did. This is Texas Ale Project's Dank Cerveza. It's a Mexican lager. They say on the can, dark, refreshing, and festive. It also says we're taking a little step up, 5.5 ABV. Uh, they say on their website that Dank Cerveza is a Mexican lager for the modern craft age. You'll sip on the familiar flavors of a traditional Mexican lager and get a great whiff of dankness from our Columbus and Idaho 7 dry hop edition. I'm, I just poured some into my glass. Yeah, I mean, it's very clear, like the uh, the last beer... A little darker, not quite as light in color, I think. But I'm getting like, did they put lime in this? I'm getting uh, a little I lime see on the nothing like of the sort. Or, or, yeah, there's something. And I don't know if that may be coming in the hops. So that would make sense. Maybe they're going for more of a dank hop profile um, with the... Uh, Are you getting dank, grapefruit? though? I don't know, but I'm getting juicy a little bit more than I would typically think of with a mexican lager and this, yeah. is, our first, this is our first time to texas ale project well, by the that. way look look at that. That. All right. so we're we're still on the uh the island of jamaica we are um you know thinking about rastafarianism again we are thinking about reggae and we are certainly thinking about the uh, sacramental herb the ganja um, which is an even bigger player in the film that we're going to be talking about in the second half of the episode like you were saying joe this is a film that um, in some quarters gets credit for helping bring reggae yeah. to a lar much larger global audience. And that most people would say was the first feature film to have ever been made and released from Jamaica. Right. And of course, what we're talking about is 1972's film by Perry Hensel, um, co-written with Trevor D. Roan, called The Harder They Come. It stars Jimmy Cliff who was already an established reggae performer and musician um, when the film kind of got underway in production in 1970. It actually took a couple years to kind of get this thing finished because 
They were doing it on a shoestring budget and they were doing it in a country that didn't have a filmmaking infrastructure and all the kinds of yeah. uh, trials and tribulations that would come along with that. But they based it on a sort of, sort of an urban legend of this outlaw character named Ivanhoe Martin, who, who, who really was this, you know, historical figure, mm-hmm. um, sort of a, you know, like a Bonnie and Clyde mm-hmm. or a Billy the Kid kind of figure in Jamaican popular culture who was known as somebody who had gone on this really notable crime spree. He was not a musician, <laughs> but they've decided to sort of take the basics of that story and transplant this Ivanhoe Martin character into present-day Jamaica, then present-day Jamaica, right around 1970, where um, Jimmy Cliff is playing the character. And in this case, he is a musician. He has this interest in music. He moves from the country to the big city, Kingston, he instantly has all his possessions stolen by <laughs> very street quickly. crime, very a quickly. little pit a pot, street pot, pushing yeah. cart or a shopping cart. Yes, and from there on out, sort of spends the movie trying to either a make it in the music business, which is a business that it's not very easy to make it in, at least as the film depicts, or to do what he needs to to make his way in the world, which ultimately has him turning to a life of crime. I loved it. You you loved this I film. Loved, I loved this it was so good. <laughs> right at the beginning. Was this the first time you had seen it? Yes, I'd never seen time. this movie before. Okay. I've never seen it. This yeah. was my first time, too. I loved it for many, many reasons. Number one, I could watch this movie again, and you could teach it in the class if you haven't already, about some editing techniques that were just incredibly stellar. And what the movie is, in my research, was a film that took a few years to make when yeah. it didn't have to because of low funding. Right. And you can see that that this is a low budget movie by probably amateurs but the acting is great mm. i mean for what it is and the i guess the i would guess i didn't do research on this exactly but that the editing choices were all about fixing fixing but what they did instead was not create but accentuate this style Remember when his stuff gets stolen and he's mm-hmm. trying to run over to it, but there's buses and traffic and people are yeah. bustling and they they do this cool editing thing that they use four or five more times for the same technique, but a different part of the story that I loved. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's a case of sort of ingenuity winning out over the lack of resources. Mm-hmm. It's that, funny. The, the motorcycle uh, cop uh, that gets shot and then the way that they show – that he had a wreck, which was just a... The first person. Yeah, the first person camera angle of what you think a motorcycle crashing mm-hmm. might look like. And that you could tell they were just But without money. having to actually crash <laughs> Damage a motorcycle. A motorcycle. And yeah, yeah. yeah. Pay the for best a motorcycle. part about DIY filmmaking like that, yeah. it's so... Uh, you feel it more. And sometimes it really hits. And, and sometimes you can still see the scotch tape on it. And you can hear. Yeah. But I, I love this movie. Oh, yeah. The one that stuck out was a whole uh, part where he was getting tortured over the barrel. Yeah, right. where they were showing like different parts of like the actual machine instead of him. Yeah, oh. yeah, and the idea that they do a corporal punishment coming <laughs> down from the the, the judge mm-hmm. get whipped. What was it? Twelve times by a that was lash. A, a specific kind yeah. of branch. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they they show it <laughs> ass out the whole thing, and it's like, oh my god. I mean, which had to have been some kind of fallback to colonialism, right? I mean, th- this is definitely a post-colonial film. Oh yeah, yeah. I I like this film a lot too. I had seen it years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it's one of those DVDs, I believe, in my early film connoisseurship. It was in the Criterion Collection. And I remember my local video store back in the early 2000s 
where they had the wall of like, you know, world cinema or something like that. And a lot of those criterion titles in there. And it kind of became this mark where I knew if it was something that had the Criterion label on it, that I would want to check it out. You, you, you got me with Frankenhooker. Well, well there you go. <laughs> which, which, as we said, is not actually in the collection, but is in the, uh, the right. channel at the time. So, which, as we didn't say, is showing at Alamo Draft <laughs> House <right>. next week. <laughs> well, I'm going to Frankenhooker. Look it yeah, up. Come I with know, me. Right? Um, was this one also the first one that like had a set like story in Jamaica? Well, so it was the first one that was shot in Jamaica uh-huh. and came out from Jamaica. Whether or not there was like an international, like a British production yeah. or an American, I can't say for sure if there wasn't a foreign film, you know, crew that came over mm-hmm. there and shot some stuff and and did. But this is the first film that was made by Jamaicans for a mass audience. And as I understand it, huge hit in Jamaica, whatever that looks like, mm-hmm. because the audience really took to seeing themselves on screen for the first time, seeing their their homes, their neighborhoods, what they all looked like, seeing a couple of the, the difference in class structure. We're in, mm-hmm. we're in the slum or ghetto for a while, mm-hmm. but we're also driving through sometimes a very posh looking, you know, yeah. uh, Jamaican coastline neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And then the story goes that it played at Venice. Yeah. And they set up shop and they rented out a theater to do their own like, underground screening okay and they did that a few times and it caught on and people were talking about it roger corman got the rights in america yeah <laughs> and it didn't succeed as a theatrical run but began uh, succeeding when he put it in the midnight run with yeah. el topo and rocky horror and you know the, right. the midnight movies and that's when the audience in america found it which makes total sense because it has i mean it is in some ways an exploitation mm-hmm. film i mean it's about this sort of crime at, you know, the, the drug trade. The, the filmmakers had seen Bonnie and Clyde. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all those editing cues are yeah. coming from them. For sure. And this is only a few years after Bonnie and I know, Clyde. yeah, yeah. I mean, Bonnie, Bonnie and Clyde's, what, 67? This they start making in 1970 mm-hmm. and, you know, gets finished around 73 and starts making the rounds and it takes a while. But, yeah, I mean, th- this was fresh on the heels of it in, in some sense. Felt very Rambo. You know, <laughs> although Rambo was like trying to just be himself, like him was like, no, I'm going to make the music, but the whole crime spree and yeah. all that, where it was like almost a personal war against right. the yeah. whole. Well, for <laughs> for the first half, I thought it was just an Elvis movie. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. It, you know, he comes in from the country with some <laughs> kind of warped shit in there. He comes from the country to the city. His stuff instantly gets stolen. He's homeless for a little while and finally goes to the church that his mom had set him up with getting a job right. at. At the church, we see church services. That's where he meets the girl that he's going to fall in love with. A rejection of religion. I mean, a very loud yeah. Yeah. expository rejection of religion. And I'm going to go get make my way in one of two things. Now, in the Elvis movie, it's always becoming the rock star. Yeah. That doesn't work out because the... The producer. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. the machine that is running... The record business in Jamaica right. controls it. When that doesn't work out, he goes into a drug thing. But that that doesn't work out for mm-hmm. him either because the machine that controls it is prevent is keeping the little man down while the big people get rich. So I imagine that this rang true to a Jamaican audience. Now, 50 what years later, it's still just as fun. And the soundtrack slaps. Oh, yeah. And then the... No, whatchamacallit, when you were talking about the class sizing too, where it's like everybody's waiting outside the gates for the record label. Right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that was a part where people were like, oh, 
if I wanted to do that, that's what I would have to do. And that's probably the part that they felt like resonated the most. Yeah. I or, think a lot of slice of life in yeah. Jamaica at that time on the screen for the very mm-hmm. first time. As the film begins, you could almost see it going down that kind of more conventional route where it's like a rise to stardom kind of story. But it totally takes that off the table <laughs> and and instead goes into and again i think audience jamaican audiences at the time knowing this ivanhoe martin story would have been expecting that right the jamaican audience would have known okay no if he's ivan martin or if he's gonna end up you know being mm-hmm. the criminal outlaw right but you know to, to our eyes people who didn't grow up with that as part of the you know sort of pop culture mythology that, oh, no. that you're enga- yeah. you know engaged in my first time seeing it i had no idea it was going to end up going in that direction. And it becomes much more like a crime film at that point. And then like a kind of a gangster film, essentially, where you have this guy who, you know, the system is set against him. Right. Right. He wants to do the right thing. He he has music in his soul. He wants <laughs> to express that. It's not his fault that the uh, guy who owns the studio and the label is a corrupt piece of shit mm-hmm. who, you know, is going to take advantage of it and pay him just $20 for this song that ends up becoming a huge hit. And again, the irony of once he has this, you know, goes on this crime spree, it becomes an even bigger hit. It becomes, than a, folk, folk, becomes a folk exactly, hero. Because it becomes like a folk anthem kind of. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Any press is good press. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly was for Hilton, right? <laughs> the guy who's, you know, the studio owner who was making all the money off of it. Yeah. It shows some of the lack of funds and resources there, oh, yeah. you know, like some of the the mise en scene here, some of the the effects, like in the the, the blood that they're using in the in the uh-huh. times when he gets shot, like, blood, the there, voiceovers. <laughs> there, there's some things that are a little bit ramshackle about it, but it's all actually pretty endearing. It 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 never feels like falling apart. Kind of th- this film doesn't hang together. It always feels like it's of a piece and i think part of it is you know the setting it's supposed to be about these downtrodden people these people who don't have the system working for them and so it kind of makes sense that the style of the film has that too but there's so it's the storytelling is so different than american filmmaking storytelling Mm. the pacing of the film really doesn't make any sense when you think about it because yeah. he rises as a crime lord mm-hmm. in a very short order. Oh, it happens quick. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, but regardless, ride with it and have a great time yeah. with it. Here's an honest moment. Uh, had, you know, we, we streamed this one, so yeah. it's available on Paramount Plus right now. I use the subtitles. Okay. I uh, wish that I had. We didn't even talk sub- about well, I was, <laughs> the, the patois in yeah. uh, the, the first film. I yeah. wish I had subtitles in the first film, uh, One Love, often. And not because they were doing, you know, under the sea from Beauty and the Beast caricatures. They were speaking, I imagine, very accurate. Yeah. And it was difficult to understand to my ears. When this film came to America, Roger Corman put uh, subtitles on it. Yeah. Which might be considered disrespectful now, these days. I I almost hated to bring it up because I didn't want it to sound any weird way. Uh, My ears could not understand all of the words in One Love gratefully the emotive nature of the actors made me understand everything that they were saying because uh i watched it on pluto tv and for some reason their subtitles like cut out the audio so i was oh if you had the subtitles on you weren't hearing the soundtrack so i was fully watching it like just straight the normal way and i was confused on some parts i will will not lie like there was um i think it's a part where he's with the mistress uh at the hotel and they're like raiding it right yes yeah there's yeah. a whole lot of dialogue that's like 
in the middle of it that you can't hear, not because of the gunshots, but because of just like the language barrier. Yeah, the accent, yeah, yeah, the yeah, accent yeah, barrier. Yeah. Pluto TV makes you choose between watching it with no sound <laughs> and the subtitles or no subtitles. That's how I had it. That's interesting. Yeah. So it really seems weird. like a very poor choice. <laughs> well, you know, I I felt the same way. I don't think it's insensitive to say, look. A strong accent in a language that is – it's a – it is a mixed language. It's a language that has elements of English but then it has elements of other, mm-hmm. you know, sort of words of other origin that don't exist in English and the way that the sort of grammar of it, the way that the syntax works. It's a different spin on English and put on top of that the fact that there's a thick accent to anybody who is an English speaker of American English mm-hmm. or, or even British English for that matter, I feel like it is a valid thing to note that it is a challenge if you're not natively, you know, familiar with that language, that it's going to be a struggle. And I, and I felt the same way. When I came out of One Love, I said to Aaron, I kind of wish I had ended up at one of the open, open caption screenings uh, because yeah. Alamo does those. Accidentally. And I've, and I've made those. it yeah. I, not on purpose, right. but there have been times where like, oh, the screening oh, at four fuck. o'clock is open caption, caption and it'll, the movie will start. And I'm like, oh, captions are on this one. Okay. But you know, I roll with it, whatever. Yeah, I, Th- that one, I would have actually seen it as a benefit. The harder they come, I definitely felt that way. I don't remember if I watched it with captions back in the day when i first saw it on dvd or not right or if i just kind of let it go but this time i definitely did have the captions on i watch caption and all those rough and tough guy Ritchie movies too i have the captions on for those the cockney accent Heck it's yeah. another thick one and they do a lot of funny things with their i think they're also exaggerating slang it often, yeah. and oh sure yeah, yeah yeah so yeah i would say if you have not seen the harder they come watch it because it, well, it's doing many many things very very well Let's not, you know, skip over the fact that the soundtrack for this film is really just as important as the film itself. And in that, it became a global phenomenon, sold really well. Um, Cliff, like I said, was already a bit of a star in the reggae scene, but this even just sort of put him on another level. And uh, and and still, I think the soundtrack is thought of as one of the, you know, sort of greatest film soundtracks what ever. Is, what does David Gurney think? I would wholeheartedly agree. I mean, <laughs> I think it's a collection. If it, You know, if you get your hands on a copy of The Harder They Come soundtrack, I think you have an excellent collection of some early 70s reggae that, you know, stands up against any of those early Bob Marley and the Whalers albums, any of the Toots and the Mytals, like they, all of that great stuff that was going on then. Cliff was right in the mix. And this is one of his great albums. And apparently I haven't heard it, but they put out a a deluxe edition a few years back that has a second disc with a bunch of other stuff that wasn't included on it originally. And supposedly that's, you know, an even richer collection. So what was the watch order that y'all had it? Did you watch The Heart of the Kim first or One Love? One Love first and then this today. Okay. Yeah. And well, like I said, I had seen The Harder They Come years ago, but watching them now for this, I saw One Love first and then this. Because I saw The Harder They Come first and then I saw One Love. And especially with the One Love being in the 70s at the time and the movie coming out like just years before it's set too. There's some shots where they're going down the main road of, I forgot what the city's called. Kingston? Kingston. They're like going down the main street and you see the main street from The Harder They Come. Uh Uh-huh. Too, so you can see like some houses that have like similarities, like whether it's the sheet metal that's like on one wall, oh, yeah, and then yeah. the drywall or the uh-huh. cinder blocks. The setting of Jamaica in One Love did fit 
I, from, it looks authentic. Yeah. Yeah. Which I will give it the benefit for that. Yeah. yeah. One thing I like about this movie is how in the first movie about Jamaica by Jamaicans, mm-hmm. the weed is in it. Oh, yeah. And it shows you the complete distribution cycle, the big bundles that are being thrown into private, like, little yeah. prop planes that come to do a quick landing. They don't even stop. You got to run up there with yeah. your big bag, of, like, duffel bag full of weed and throw it in there and shoo, <laughs> they take off to how it's distributed via moped all around the island. It was interesting. Like, even down to, like, the individual spliffs that he's, like, yeah. selling at the beginning of his career. Or the ripping of the paper that he's, like, doing a roll-up. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I, I enjoyed <laughs> this movie a lot. It was fun. It's it's an incredible document of a certain moment Correct. in time. That's a, that's a good way that, to put like, it. Like, beyond just being an entertaining film in and of itself, which it is, it is one that is hard. Like, I mean, what you said, Christian, if you're going to watch One Love, make sure you watch The Harder They Come because you're going to see how much they got right about the look and feel yeah. of Jamaica in that moment in time in the 1970s. And I think you're going to see a slightly grittier version yeah, of it. Right. But one that feels very much lived in and real and like this is the space that these people were inhabiting at this time. So it's, it's just kind of like it has a documentary aspect to it that I think goes above and beyond just this is an entertaining kind Narrative, of exploitation right. crime yeah. film, which it is. But it's also like a really interesting moment in general history and music history that you're getting to see a peak of. One Love didn't sugarcoat Jamaica, which was really good. Because I know in um, The Harder They Come where they're showing the whole final chase like on the boat and them like storming Mm -hmm. the beach almost. They didn't show the cops like berating. Like I feel like the police force, since they both had like the main like everybody's like sort of a... A criminal, you know? Yeah. Having the police officers almost, like, trying to figure out new plans to, like, find them. Yeah. Oh, okay. They're, like, actively working. But then you also feel the ruralness of it. Right. Because they had no armor, no helmet. Right. It was just, like, full Jamaican soldiers, just uniform. One of them had a stick. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I liked how in one of the plans that the cops were doing, there was a map and they threw Hot Wheels onto it. (laughs) <laughs> you remember that? Yeah. We yep. got to put all of our forces and then they just threw Hot Wheels <laughs> down with cop cars. It was fun. Yeah. It was, a good, it was a good movie. My first time into a Jimmy Cliff performance. Yeah. Also my first time to Texas Ale Project. Hmm? Mm. Uh, this is their dank Cerveza Mexican lager. I got to be honest with you, David. I only want a Mexican lager if I'm eating tacos. Mexican mm. lager is not my go-to yeah. much. It's the salt. It makes it better. Salt and lime, the fully dressed. <laughs> now, I got to say, I do not taste lime in the beer. So I don't think nose. that there's that. I think it was on the note. I think it was more about the hops that they're using. And that may be why they're calling it a dank one, because they're using a bit more of a robust kind of hop bill here than you would on a typical Mexican lager. That would be my best guess. I think it has the elements that I expect with the Mexican lager, which I think they're using probably some corn in there. So there's a little bit more sweetness, certainly more sweetness than we had with the red stripe, of course. Which, I, which I would describe as being pretty dry in comparison. Mm-hmm. I tend to be, like, as much as I'm a lager guy, I would put probably Mexican lagers towards the bottom of that list just because they do have a little bit more of a sweetness to them right. than than I generally want there to be in, in my lagers. But this one is pretty drinkable. I'm, I'm enjoying it well enough. It, you know, it probably wouldn't be the beer that I would be grabbing all the time. But given the the name of it, it was a fun little tie-in to the idea of, you know, how prominent ganja was in sure. uh, the, the Harder They Come, as well as even though it wasn't being named as much and, and sort of done quite as blatantly in One Love, it was there. Yeah. My compendium of beers is like, 
it's about here. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, I, but, just comparing the two, did you end up liking this more or less than Red Stripe, would you say? I say I like the Red Stripe a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Just because it is uh, smoother, but it's also like I would take probably the Dank over like Modelo just because it does have the little bit of like citrus flavor. Yeah. Which isn't common in beers to me yeah. that I've at least had. So well, one of the first questions on after hours will be, "What is the drinking game at twenty one for you?" I'm, I'm, very, <laughs> I'm very curious, and if you do come back, and we hope that you will, we'll guide you into. We'll, we'll keep that in mind. You know, this is a stout. This is a that's right. And then when you say IPAs are, are gross, I'll turn you around on that too. Give me some time. <laughs> Let's see. Time. Let's see. The dank cerveza is one that if it was at a cooler at a party, I'd reach for it again. Oh yeah, uh, I I liked this beer as well. Uh, and a Mexican lager is not at the top of my list, but this is really, really well made. And I think that that hop choice makes it a little more interesting than just, you know, the Corona or whatever. Mm-hmm. Are you a big lager guy or like what's your? Well, at this show, David is the lager guy and I'm the IPA guy. Uh... If you're going to like boil us down to, you know, simple. <laughs> and it hasn't, always, it hasn't always been that way. I've gravitated more towards lagers. Yeah, he's gravitated toward lagers. On. I've also opened up my heart and eyes and mind to everything else mm-hmm. on yeah. purpose because who wants to be pigeonholed? Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Part of the fun is the diversity of <laughs> offerings that you can get. Uh, That's the truth. Yeah. What's the white guy stereotype for beer? <laughs> <laughs> well, Lager beer and IPA. Yeah. <laughs> Christian, you notice we both have beards. <laughs> we do our yeah. best. There, there, there's a lot of white stereotypes uh, active in this yeah. podcast. <laughs> my, my t-shirt is throwing you off a bit. <laughs> okay, so hey, look, the conversation's end. It's winding down, you can tell. But yeah, no, you know what? It doesn't end here. No. You can catch us everywhere. We're on all the social media stuff. Look at our look for our black and white beautiful round logo. Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. Instagram. But you can also go to our website where we've got curated lists of different directors' work and different film packages for you to quickly listen to old episodes. And you can also buy our merch there. Christian, I know that your gift basket today as you leave. There's a gift basket. <laughs> go along. <laughs> there is no gift basket. The gift is the beer that you enjoyed today, mm. the education that you received. Uh, but no, you can. Uh, there's some merch there that that, that our beer and the movie podcast dot com, and then Discord. Don't forget a lot of fun conversations there. But also after hours, we've talked about it, Christian. I hope you'll stick around for another thirty five, yeah, forty five, for sure. maybe an hour while we pick your brain about being young. Because Dave and I <laughs> are so far from that that. Yeah, every have, day yeah. where where the distance grows longer. Yeah, that's right. But there's always new minds. That's so you right. Never know. That's We're right. cultivating your mind. And yeah. after hours, <laughs> beer in a movie. Po- no, it's uh, patreon.com slash beer in a movie podcast. Guess that about wraps it up. This has been another Jamaican fueled reggae soaked episode of Beer in a Movie. Until next time, I want my music to unify people all over the earth. And that time is now. Mm-hmm.